Hello and welcome to Brokenomics. And in this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Lord Dobsworth and Patrick Fagan. Guys, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, Lord, I'll start with you because I was such a huge fan of your, your first book, The State of Fear. I don't know if, if that was your first book. Or... It wasn't. I'm going to let oh, you off okay. if that's the apologize. first one you noticed because the first three are a bit different. Yeah. The State of Fear is actually my fourth book. Ah, I see. What were the, what were the original three? Oh, here we go. We're going to start with my, my strange trajectory from breasts to brains. My first book was called Bare Reality, 100 mm -hmm. Women, Their Breasts, Their Stories. Okay. And I photographed and interviewed 100 women about their sexed experience of life, about their breasts. Oh. And then um, my second Sounds book, like I'd like that one. I, like you what? You would or you wouldn't? I think I would, yes. I think you would. Yes. Everyone would like it. It's not necessarily what you're thinking. Right. It's not what you're thinking. If, the way you say, I think I might like that one, <laughs> makes me think, you might not like that one, but you would, I think you, you should. Okay. So the point of it really was to subjectify rather than objectify women. So I just photographed okay. their breasts, just here, yes. anonymous. But I asked them all about their experience of their breasts, how they affected their lives, their body image, breast cancer, breastfeeding, all kinds of things. Oh. Um, yeah, it's, um, it's kind of a counterpoint to the pernicious effects of page three in the sun that I grew up with. So right. then after that, you see, I thought, well, I've done women. Now I've got to do men, haven't I? Oh, dear. Here we go. <laughs> so I photographed and interviewed 100 men about their manhood and their manhood. Did this one have pictures as well? <laughs> yes. Right, okay. <laughs> of their manhood, yeah. Okay. I didn't think that one I might one get the through. audible version of that one then. I think you'd like the picture version. In fact, um, okay. I will post your copy, Dan. That is very kind of you. And Thank you can you. have me back another time and we can talk all about it. And then my third book was called Womanhood, um, because right. after manhood, I thought, oh, I've done, I've done women, I've done men, okay. job done. And then it, it dawned on me, you know, it kind of crept up on me. Actually, this really isn't true. Um, yeah. I'd left the most intimate part of women's body, not because... Is this another I'd picture done... book? <laughs> yes, another picture. <laughs> it's called Womanhood, The Bare Reality. And I photographed and interviewed 100 women about their vulvas and their vaginas. And then from that, there was the Channel 4 documentary, yes. 100 Vaginas, okay. which was actually a huge success all around the world. I can imagine it would be. And then you thought, OK, let's pick up on psychological warfare. Well, you see, what happened was actually I had some very cool film photography interview projects planned in 2020. Mm. Um, just as lockdown struck, I was finishing a photo project. I was... Um, photographing and interviewing women who had detransitioned. So women who had ah. once thought they were men and had had either social transition or hormones and all the surgical procedures you can imagine. Mm. And I photographed them in a way that's supposed to be really beautiful and sympathetic to them as women, but showing their scars and interviewing them about that experience. And I was driving all around the motorway that last weekend before lockdown thinking, a whole bunch of expletives, I'm not gonna say on air, how am I gonna get this done on time? The newspaper in question were going, oh, we're not sure we can commission this anymore, Laura, because you're not supposed to be travelling. I was like, I can, I can. It's not illegal yet. Whizzing round, meeting all these incredibly inspiring, fragile, wonderful women. Finished that. And then everything else I had planned, I couldn't do because of lockdown. Mm. The commissions ended. I had Arts Council money languishing in my bank account for a year before I had to give it back. And I was so struck by the, well by everything we all lived through yes. from March 2020 that my focus just completely, it completely shifted. It was and very I wrote much about my awakening fear. as well. I mean, I get, I get the impression from reading The State of Fear that, um, which I actually bought four copies of, by the way, because I was so impressed with it. I bought an extra three copies and sent them to family members. I can't promise that any more than the first copy was actually read because they were kind of deep in the cult, but, but it was sent to them nevertheless. But I kind of get the impression from that that you're a bit like me and that you were 
more or less a normie before before COVID, and then it was really eye-opening because what you covered was the extent of the psychological operations that the government were committing against us. Uh, you managed to get whistleblowers. You just managed to expose the whole thing. Ha- has there been any um, acknowledgement or self-reflection from from um, government f- from what you exposed? I'm going to just pick up on three things in that because there's sure. really interesting stuff there. First okay. of all, Normie, we're going to so tackle that. <laughs> Please um, do. Yeah, this epiphany I had mm. and any acknowledgement. So, look, we've just described my previous three books. I don't mm. think we can say I was a Normie as such. Um, I think my work's always been quite left field and really preoccupied with taboo. Yeah. Things that, you know, the really interesting stuff, the things that are in the darkest corners of our psychological closets Mm. that's what i'm drawn to fascinate yeah i'm fascinated by what i'm drawn to what makes us who we are what makes us tick um but it was an epiphany it was a real political awakening Mm. realizing that so many things i've taken for granted were really an illusion because if they were very strong principles they couldn't have been snatched away from us so easily yes and i decided to write the book not from some high and mighty vantage point like I already knew things, but I'm really trying to take the reader along on a bit of a journey with me. And I think that when you when you undertake work which is truly in service to yourself and to other people, if you're doing the right work, things just come to you. And it was as though something was being channeled through me in that nine months I wrote the book. I got introduced to so many people very well placed, advising government, YB advisors responded to my requests. Um, I interviewed Lord Sumption. I mean, so many incredible people. I don't think that there has been very much acknowledgement since from people who enacted the policies. And I don't think we're likely to see it. I bet, you know, in various ways today, Patrick and I talk about the cognitive dissonance since. Um, I think it would be very hard for people who forced lockdown and masks which were unevidenced on a population to acknowledge to themselves, let alone to the rest of us, that such policies might have been without measurable benefit and were harmful. Um, so no, not much acknowledgement. Mm. So the first book, sorry, the the, the the first of the two books in this sort of mini series, if we call it like that, not the picture books, um, that illustrated a psychological operation, but it was very much focused on the on the COVID efforts. This next book, it sort of makes me think, well, actually, that was not an aberration, that simply these, these psychological operations are just part and parcel of government now. So that's what I realised. And that was the fascinating thing about this journey of research, reading and interview that I went on. I started seeing the same techniques in other countries and other times. And right here, right now, you know, it's undeniable that we're seeing um, the same sort of propagandistic behavioural science and fear-mongering approach to climate crisis. And that's the thing that once you see the techniques, you can't unsee them. And I've been quite preoccupied since that time with the notion of how to free how to free minds. You know, there's a lot of talk in society about free speech, which is important, but free speech is worth very little without free thinking. You know Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yes. this pyramid, and on the bottom he's got Wi-Fi. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to beat that. Like similar, water, food, clean yes. air. I think if you have those things, but you don't know how to think for yourself, or you're not allowed to think for yourself, you might as well be a slave. I put free thinking right at the bottom. It's everything because you know when we were locked down, when we weren't allowed to have a relationship, date, have sex, go to work, worship, send our children to yeah. school, 
all these things. Well, unless you're one of the people at the podium, in which case you could do all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And lots of people, of course, were breaking the rules in ways that worked for them, mm. even while thinking they were following the rules. There was a couple that I broke. Um, but even though, you know, it's even though we were not allowed to leave our home, I realised there was one part of my life that could stay free, and that was my mind. I could do everything possible to control the information um, that I took in, um, to interpret it according to my own judgments. That doesn't mean that I reject all advice or even that I'd reject all manipulation or that I reject the idea of government. I'm not an anarchist. Um, I just wanted my mind to be free. And it's, it's a question, of course, that's preoccupied philosophers throughout the ages. What does it mean to be human? What is the theory of the mind? Um, and I realized that there's no savior. There's nobody coming to save us. Governments keep perpetuating the techniques. We can't expect them to produce an ethical body that's going to keep us safe from manipulation. Sure, we've got things like the Advertising Standards Authority and Ofcom. I'd question how much they really help the ordinary person. Yes. So I think it starts with you. It starts with the individual. That is an interesting dynamic, isn't it? Because it's the, you know, the Ofcoms are there to regulate the advertisers, but the voters are supposed to be there to regulate the government. But of course, these techniques are being used to manage our perceptions so that we end up voting for, you know, the same parties who all have the same package of responses as well. So the whole process has got gummed up in a really nasty way behind that. You have hit the nail exactly on the head. This is the whole problem. You know, there's a study we refer to in the book that showed that when people watched lots of um, crime on news mm. in the US, they wanted more law, order, law and order policies from their government. So if you're being told about the number of people who are dying every day, during COVID, yes. and everywhere you see there are ads, um, posters, and there are dots on the ground showing you where to stand and officials telling you to put your masks on. You know what? The idea of an infectious disease and controls to um, contain it will be top of your mind and you'll be demanding longer, harder lockdowns. This becomes a self-fulfilling loop. And I think you even see this in the advisors at the time who seem to become quite frightened themselves while they've since said, oh, no, we didn't use fear. It was the government what done it. Mm. You know, Spy B advisors like Stephen Reicher, Susan Mickey, uh, Robert West wrote an article in BMJ saying that you know, fear is contraindicated unless you give people agency. It's the government that was doing all those things. If you look back at things they were saying in the media at the time, they seem to have been scared out of their wits. You know, at one point, Susan Mickey was on TV saying, oh, we'll need to wear masks forever. Sure, there's some context about what she said. But the very idea somebody would say that to me shows they've somewhat lost their marbles. We're not going to be wearing masks forever. So that sort of self-perpetuating doom loop affected all of us, but I think it also affects the policymakers. Patrick, during the book, I read that um, Laura spent some time in a beautiful convent with lovely grounds for 24 hours to, to detox from social media. And you went on a masculine retreat where you were stripped, <laughs> shouted at, made yeah. to sleep in a small room on yeah. a concrete floor with lots of other men. Yeah. You joined a pyramid selling scheme and you temporarily went trans. So it's possible that Laura got the better end of the, <laughs> of the experiences on that one. But did you deserve it? Because you're from the dark side, aren't you? What's, what's your background? Uh, so I am a little bit from the dark side. Uh, so I'm a behavioral scientist, but not an evil one. I hope. Right. Um, <laughs> you use your powers for good. I, well, not for evil. <laughs> let's put it that way. Okay. Um, so I use it for um, brands, you know, advertising, the occasional political campaign, but nothing with much uh, mm -hmm. uh, impact in the real world. Um, uh, which I think there's kind of a uh, ethical separation from that versus, say, uh, a government. Uh, which has a kind of moral imperative to use these techniques. 
um, Coca-Cola, for example, they don't have a, a team dedicated to fighting uh, Coca-Cola hesitancy. Uh, they don't. Yes. They don't feel it's their. There duty. are going to be no mandates based around Coca-Cola. Exactly. Yes. yes. And on the other hand, the the road to to hell is paved with good intentions, and there's all sorts of examples of unintended consequences of um, applying these kind of behavioral science techniques at a total population level. Um, but yes, I'm a little bit a little bit um, shady, I suppose. I was the lead psychologist at Cambridge Analytica. Um, they for, were in the news a lot about two years ago, weren't they? Uh, it was about five years ago now. Five years, um, wow. Okay, yeah, yes. yeah, it's been oh, a while. COVID messed with our sense of time. Yes, mm, it did. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, well, yes, that's it. But now I'm, I'm trying to kind of, with Laura, show people up the magician's sleeve. Um, and, and I understand that you two first got in touch because you wrote a polemic on, on face masks. So, so I guess I ought to throw the, this, this first question to you is, um, did face masks work? And when I say work, I don't mean prevent transmission. Mm -hmm. I mean for their actual intended purpose. Yes, absolutely. They worked mm -hmm. for that purpose. Um, obviously, they didn't prevent transmission at all. How could they? You're still breathing air. Um, so the whole thing is slightly ridiculous. But psychologically, uh, yes, they worked very well. Uh, I think that was twofold. Number one, they took the um, pandemic and the virus and they made it concrete. So what I mean is they made it visible. Mm. So if you're seeing everyone's wearing masks everywhere, uh, you think, oh, there must be a pandemic. It's a constant visual reminder. Uh, the second thing um, is that uh, it kind of, uh, I think, maybe breaks people a little bit. Mm. So we tend to think that our attitudes drive our behaviors, but often it's also the other way around, that your behaviors drive your attitudes. And so if you're made to wear a mask because of social pressure or rules at work, or whatever it might be, you'll start to post-rationalize and think, well... So I'm... did you recognize these te techniques at work when you saw this being rolled out? Well, like many people who seem to kind of resist this, I'm a freelancer now. I'm a, mm -hmm. uh, more of an entrepreneur, so I didn't really have an office job as such. Um, but uh, yes, absolutely, I saw them pretty much from the start. So I wrote that article... Uh, I was a bit passionate at the time. It was called Face Masks Make You Stupid. Um, I wrote that in March 2020, I think. Yes, no, I, I agree entirely. Um, and at, at the same time, I'd written an article called Masks are the Vestiture of the Faithful. So I'd worked mm. with um, a seamstress and she'd embroidered some masks for me with words like obedience, conformity, purity. And I'd argued that, again, they didn't work. There was no evidence base for them. There's some examples of that in the article. And then just went on to say, this is like religious garb. You know, people cover their heads and their faces in religions throughout the world. This has always happened. Mm. People are leaning into religious behavior. And I, I'd interviewed um, advisors close to government who told me that the masks were signals for my research for a state of fear. So when I saw Patrick's article, I was like, well, this is really interesting because I, I liked the courage in the article as much mm. as some people would have thought, oh, gosh, who is this guy telling us we're stupid Look, because we're wearing masks? It was really carefully referenced. Yes. And as a result of that, I got in touch with Patrick and interviewed him for a state of fear. And we stayed in touch ever since. I think that's kind of like, that's kind of where we bring, bring these different yeah. angles, but similar thinking, but different angles to the same yes. subject. Well, but it, because it isn't just COVID, is it? Um, one, one of the questions I have is, I get the impression they want us to eat bugs. Is that true? And how are they going to do it? Well, this is a great example of what you were talking about earlier about uh, this kind of nidocracy, where we used to think that um, the public uh, would use votes to enact their will through politicians, but now yes. it's actually politicians enact their will through nudges on the public. Um, and there's, for example, 
celebrities pushing eating insects. Uh, the BBC releases the occasional puff piece about it. What's really interesting is no one, presumably no one, is writing to the BBC. Uh, Dear BBC, please, please, more articles about eating insects. So this is very much a top-down uh, thing. And there's all sorts of these behavioral science techniques that they're using. Mm. Uh, number one, they don't use nasty insects. They don't talk about nasty insects. It's always, for example, crickets, which sound, sound a bit like chicken, or mealworms, which have the word meal in. It's never yes. scorpions or centipedes. Wasps is, or something. There was that really uh, uh, just astonishing video where Angelina Jolie mm -hmm. went the whole mile and she barbecued tarantulas and scorpions and mm -hmm. fed them to her children. Lovely. It's, it, and I think that's actually a BBC video. And then there was one that... Um, Nicole Kidman made with Vanity Fair, where she's just dressed up to the nines. That's so glamorous. She's on mm, stage yeah. on a spotlight, like a 50s starlet. And she works her way through an insect banquet with absolute relish. Wow. So sometimes it's revolting. And I think you also talked about how, you know, step one is to, to sort of grind it into powder and then add a small amount of flour. So you can't see it and you don't notice it. And then, you know, once once they've got the foot in the door, well, you've already been eating 5% bugs for, you know, for however long. You know, does, it, does it really matter if now, it's, now, you, now you've got wasp burgers or, or whatever it is they're going to go for? Exactly. So that's the foot in the door technique. Uh, yes. They'll start with something small and then kind of build it up, especially with insects. They try and hide it. One of their main recommendations is don't put insects on the packaging. Um, but another example is ULES. So it started out congestion charge, and then the LES, and then the ULES, and then it's expanding. And then Angela Rayner now says that it will be across the entire UK. So these things often start small, but then yes. gradually increase. So, so this is something I've always had pushback on when I've talked about these 15-minute cities that at the moment are just these planter boxes. And I keep saying, well, they're not going to stay planter boxes. Mm -hmm. and, and people seem to get upset. And they say, well, it's, it's, just, it's just some flowers and planter boxes. What are you worried about? So does, does that fit the pattern as well? Can you see that going down the route of planter boxes today and then step, 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 concrete wall? Yes, exactly. Absolutely. And in fact, there's a word for it. It's called incrementalism and it's a deliberate strategy. If they told you at the outset what their goal was, you'd say yes. no chance. Now, let's say that there are some weird insect loving policymakers at supranational organisations who really believe that the solution to climate crisis is that we should all be eating insects mm. and not eating cheese and not eating egg and bacon or steak, all those nice things that we like and we've evolved to eat. If they said to you, look, the plan is that by such and such a year, you're going to get 60% of your diet from insects, you'd recoil and you'd, you'd, you'd give them a firm no. You'd exhibit reactance. You'd be like the teenager being told what to do by your parents and you say, not a chance. And you go out and you buy extra steaks. So it's slow. It's through incrementalism. They use the yes. celebrities who are messengers to soften you up, make it look glamorous and acceptable. They use big numbers that make it seem like everyone's doing it already. Two billion people around the world eat insects. Actually, that's a very contested figure. It's not provable. It's not true. And even yeah. if it was true, and it's, it's not... It's totally five billion that doesn't. <laughs> exactly. Well done. It's it been reframed. The majority of people do not eat insects. Yes. And in the countries that they do, it's because often of access to higher quality food and poverty. Um, and they use the foot in the door technique, or as we've called it in the book, the mandible in the door technique. They're just trying to edge their way in in a subtle way that you won't notice. Also trials in schools. So um, 
There are Welsh school children taking part in trials not to eat insects, but to challenge their attitudes towards it. And we've seen this in other schools around the world because children are considered to be more open-minded. And then if they like it and they talk about it, they get the multi-generational spillover effect. Mm. They take it back to their homes. And these are techniques which have been used in all kinds of other circumstances before, like anti-smoking campaigns. And we probably never took exemption to teaching children they shouldn't smoke and then the children go home and nag their parents. But with insects, it feels like it's a, mm. it's a mandible too far. And you mentioned that they don't unveil their plans. I mean, actually, I find sometimes they do unveil their plans, but they do it in these sort of documents. So they do it at these events. And then I've tried, I've tried on our podcast as well, sort of bringing people's attention to this. And, you know, people in our sphere tend to get this. But a lot of the time, people just say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. They use that term against you, even when you're citing a, uh, a supranational organisation that has massive influence that people turn up to every year on a ski resort. You can say, well, look, you know, here is the official document where they set out exactly what it is that they're trying to do. And it's, and it's just immediately shut down with the term conspiracy theorist, as if that is supposed to be a way of just making you shut up and, and stop talking about it. Uh, I think one of the points you make in your book is we've got to stop letting that word have any, or those words have any power over us. I think that's, um, it's probably one of the most controversial points we make in the book. I'm waiting for somebody, some misinformation unit to pick it up. But the thing is, when I wrote A State of Fear, it was really well reviewed. It's now cited a number of academic books and papers Good. it's on undergrad learning courses i mean it's Good. it's been reviewed by some really senior academic um scientists and yet when the times reviewed it they called it conspiracy theory no conspiracy theory in the book there's a couple of points of theorizing um based upon interviews but there's no conspiracy theory in there everything i i, I said was minuted or, or evidence-based but the whole, the whole point of the term conspiracy theory, it's a neologism, it's, it's a new term and it's designed to shut down questions because they've made conspiracy theories look like really stupid people, people who lurk in basements, who, who spend all their time on computers, who've got it wrong, who might even cause damage. You even mm. get these strange tenuous links with domestic terrorism. And yes. because it is designed to shut down dissent, we should be quite wary of it. The only real conspiracy theory would be that power, powerful people don't conspire in their own interests. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they're conspiring literally, supposedly, in your best interests. You just mm. may not agree with their strategy and their aims. There are lots of examples of conspiracy theories which were proven true. We gave just a tiny handful in the book. Um, but we'd suggest people shouldn't be afraid of the term because the whole point of the term is to shut you down. In fact, there's even an argument for reclaiming it. We spoke to one political scientist who recommends we reclaim it, just like people reclaimed the terms queer or witch. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.